0: Thank you for joining us on the Underdog Podcast, the place where we believe at one point in your life, you were an underdog and overcame adversity. And for that reason, we want to hear your story. I am your boy, Calvin Blackman. And I am Kyle Decker.
1: This episode is powered by the Riley Decker Companies. The right decision. For more information, go to RileyDecker.com. If someone challenges you and says your job is on the line unless you're the number one producer next year or come in first place, how would you respond? Our guest today was presented with this challenge at one point in his career and he did just that. As the former general manager of the Cincinnati Reds and Washington Nationals, Jim Bowden has sustained excellence. Now an American baseball analyst, Jim is here to share his journey. Welcome to the UDP Jim, great to have you on man.
2: Hey, thanks for having me on. I love your podcast. They're tremendous. I love all the underdog stories. Really an incredible concept that you guys came up with.
0: And and first and foremost, I'd be remiss, and you didn't even, my partner in crime, our boy here, his son, Trey Bowden. Shout out to Trey. Um, Or or, or Bowden. Bowden. always. yeah, he actually told me last night, dude, don't butcher the last name, and I just did it. So... (laughs) Uh, sorry, Trey, um, but no, we really appreciate uh, you know his leadership here with us and all the great things. You got to check out our videos. I told him his dad's hype video for your your podcast better be the best. Right. So um, no, but uh, he's he's great and super excited to let's get in his uh, journey. Yeah, let's make it happen. So with the story that we
1: typically like to do, uh, you know, with the way we like to do things here on the Underdog is really highlight kind of early on. Um, You know, in people's careers, you know, things that have been moments of overcoming adversity, uh, if I could talk this morning. Um, But really, let's go back to early on in your career, because I think, or I guess your childhood, you know, it was told to us by your son that you always had a vision as a kid of wanting to be a general manager. And to have that dream as a kid and then to fulfill it and not necessarily be wanting to be the star basketball baseball football player but to want to be a general manager and to to be able to see that through and overcome the adversity and and have that success can you talk about early on have where that actual drive and vision came from as a youngster and and how it kind of led up to where you are today
2: yeah. So as a, as a young kid, uh, the one thing my dad and I had in common was baseball he was, he was a big baseball fan. I became one because he was, and that's the one thing that he and I related to. And so I loved the sport, but I also knew at a young age that I wasn't going to have the talent to play in the big leagues. You know, I wasn't the best player on my team. Um, I might outwork people, you know, I might out energize people, but I wasn't the best player and I knew I wasn't going to be, be a big league player. But as a young kid, I used to sit on my dad's lap and he would say, would you make this trade for the Red Sox or that trade? And then real trades would happen. And he would explain to me back then when I was a kid, Dick O'Connell was the GM of the Boston Red Sox. And he said, this is the guy that makes the decisions. Well, when I was a young kid, they traded my favorite player, Reggie Smith. And I cried. It was like terrible. I said, how could they do that? How can they trade my favorite player? I want that job so I don't trade a Reggie Smith. So as a young kid, I said to my dad, I want to be a GM. When I grow up, I want to be a GM. And my dad looked at me and he said, son, you have no chance. You have no chance because there's only 24 in the world. You're not going to be one of 24. First of all, you're not you're not the right religion. Second of all, you don't have any contacts. It's never going to happen. So make your dreams a little more realistic. It's not going to happen. And so, you know, I kind of took my dreams and put it under the pillow and kept hoping someday. And, and then I go to college, you know, just a normal, you know, lower middle class student, you know, not a great student. I go to college and my freshman year, you know, the playoffs and World Series are going on. And I, I wanted to watch it. No one on my floor like baseball, except this one other kid named Squire. So he and I would watch the playoffs and we would talk about it. And then a couple of the kids would come in and then all of a sudden, like two weeks later, as we get ready for the World Series, I went to you know sit down and watch it in, in, in the room there at McKean Hall at Rollins College. And uh, he turned it on, turned on the TV said, and, you know, Squire wasn't there. And I said to the other kid, hey, where, where's, uh, where's that kid Squire? He said, well, if you look on TV in the front row, that's where he is because his family owns the Pittsburgh Pirates. <laughs> wow. I was like, what? Like, he never told me that. Like, we talk baseball. I kept arguing with him about trades and players, but I didn't know his family owned the Pirates. So I built a relationship with him in college because he was the only one on the floor that liked baseball. And then he said, hey, you want to go to the winter meetings? Hey, you want to go to spring training? Hey, you want to go to the playoffs? Like, oh, yeah, I can do that. That would be great. Um, And that eventually led to the opportunity that I had after I graduated college to work for the Pittsburgh Pirates.
1: Now, I want to go back to you mentioned your father. Uh, Now, I don't know, you know, what your overall dynamic was with your father, but it sounds like he didn't really empower you on this vision and this dream that you had. So for a lot of kids that could be crushing when your parents aren't aren't supportive. How are you able to overcome that?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So I mean, I had um, a lot of inner strength. And I felt like I felt like I was always going against the world. I've always felt that was me against the world. So as a young child, you know, I didn't have many brothers. I had a, I had a sister. We didn't have a great relationship. So I brought kind of myself up as a child. My dad was always working. My mom was always out. Um, So, you know, I love sports. I embrace sports, but I always felt like I had that chip on the shoulder. Right. I was always that I got to find a way because I'm not going to accept mediocrity. I don't want to be mediocre. And so my favorite teams growing up were the Lakers and the Cowboys. Well, how can you grow up in New England and like the Lakers and the Cowboys? Well, first of all, the Lakers were what, right? James Worthy, Magic Johnson. I mean, you know, you talk about all the flash, the Hollywood. That was me. My dad was a Celtics fan. Boring. And then, of course, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, we didn't have all the football games on. But at 4 o'clock growing up, we had on Sundays the Dallas Cowboys. And they had that blue star in that helmet as a little kid. So I became a Cowboys and Lakers fan when I was very little and followed them and uh, kept saying that, you know, someday I want to end up in Hollywood. Someday I'll find a way to get there. So didn't know how, didn't have a path, didn't have a way, but I did have that kind of underdog chip on my shoulder vision.
0: And that's exactly what I was just going to say. I think a lot of times that mentality of, um, like I always say, for me here at our business was we start in the back corner of a mall plaza. I think sometimes when you're back in that corner, people either fight or flight and your vision was so there and that challenge was so apparent and i think uh you know that's something we've learned through a lot of our guests is something either it drives you to do what you did and go on your journey or it can you know obviously take you off that road quickly and that's uh you yeah, know that's great that you took that challenge and and what a small world just to re- relate back to the wrong college and squire cool name by the way i don't know if i know anyone squire All but right. uh I have another kid <laughs> oh he got whoa 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 <laughs> um <laughs> But you know what a small world you know that you're so passionate about baseball and then you're you, you have no idea and, and and that kind of puts you and him together and he owns his family owns the Pittsburgh Pirates and then how did that get you in like you said that you started to go to the meetings and and things and then that got you your your first job and that relationship right helped you get into baseball is that right
2: yeah and so my first job you know by then I still didn't think GM was going to happen for me. So what I thought was realistic was getting into broadcasting and maybe I could be down the road, a play-by-play announcer. So obviously that wasn't going to happen right out of college. So um, Squire's father, uh, Dan Galbraith offered me a job in the PR department. So my first two years of working out of college was making copies. They used to have this thing called a Xerox machine and we used to make copies of game notes. Um, That was my job. And then two years later, the Galbraith family sold the Pirates. Um, a consortium of business leaders in Pittsburgh bought the team, and they fired everyone except two or three people. And I was one of one of the people they actually kept. So Mac Prine was the CEO. He was also the CEO of Ryan Homes, and he brought me into his office. And I asked him, I said, why, "Why did you decide to keep me?" He said, "Because you're different than the rest. You, you, you're you've got that vision. You think out of the box. You're innovative. You're creative." And I feel like you're going to fit where we need to go, which is a much different direction. So then he looked at me and he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be GM of the team. And he laughed hysterically. I said, I'm not kidding. That's what I want to do. I said, so what I want you to do is put me in the baseball operations department so I can learn and and someday maybe reach my dreams. And he looked at me and he said, why would you want to be a GM when you could be a president? I can train you to be a president someday. And then the GM works for the president, and you'll make more money. I said, because you're missing the point. I'm not here to make money. I want to be a GM. I want to make trades. I want to build the baseball team. I'm going to give you a couple of projects here. I want you to computerize these offices. I want you to redo construction. I want you to knock all the walls out and make this more of an open environment here. And I want you to put in a whole new phone system. And if you can computerize and put in a phone system and, and redo the construction here over the next two to three years, if you can get that done, I will give you an opportunity in the Baseball Operations Department. I, 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 I said, deal. Okay. So he doubled my salary. I went and did it. Six months later, I walked into his office and said, I'm done. And he was like, what? Done. It's all done. So he said, all right, there you go. He, he walked me over. Um, introduced me uh, to Sid Thrift, who was the GM, and uh, I got into baseball operations, and then the rest is history.
1: And one thing I wanted to highlight, and I was going to say it a few minutes ago, was on this show, you know, so many times with a lot of our recent guests, it's been, you know, their athleticism or, you know, their drive in, you know, as being a coach and being competitive. But for someone listening, you're a perfect example of it doesn't have to be competitive on the field or actually on the court you can be competitive in the front office or in the business world just in your everyday business world if you have as you just said if you have the mindset and the drive like that correlates anywhere and i think that's the beauty of this show where we want to we we like to show that correlation between sports and business and you're the perfect example of you don't have to put on a uniform to be to be successful and 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 do what you want to do you wanted to be a gm and and you proved it
0: and think about it it takes what it takes and and jim you just showed me and i had no idea the depth of that story of just starting doing copies i mean (laughs) right like on a xerox machine a lot of people i would assume might not know that about your story they just see you know hey he's the gm here or there and now he's on mlb network or previously espn or whatever right you you have a a great platform now but he started doing copies and that's just i think a very uh, humbling uh understanding and then seeing once again that you were willing to grind and grit it out and hustle and get that project done earlier and prove that hey through uh doing work works and sometimes just you know getting at getting after it and seeing the mission and accomplishing it that's very uh refreshing to understand so then you move on to if i if I have it correctly to the Yankees then to the reds is that right?
2: Yeah, that is right. And, and let me just, I, I just want to circle back for one moment, just to kind of understand for our listeners that the key for me was getting rid of my mouth and adding a third ear and realizing as I'm in my low to mid twenties that I don't know what I think I know and that I needed to learn. And so, you know, how would somebody be able to computerize and redo construction? How can you do all that when you have no training in that? And it was because I went to all the top businesses in the city and said, hey, we need to save baseball in Pittsburgh. So I went to all the presidents, the CEOs of all these companies help me. Teach me. Tell me how I do this. How can I put in the best computer system? How can I put in the best phone system? How, How can we do this construction economically to make it work? and to create this kind of vibe. And I just went to all the experts, people that were successful at it. And then when I got to the baseball side of things, it was put in there. I didn't sit there and have the answers. What I did was listen to Jim Leland and listen to Hal McRae, listen to all the players, the GMs, um, the coaches, the trainers, the flexibility people. Like All I did was learn, didn't have any answers, just sat there and learned, and then did everything I could help the GM to be successful when I was there. But all I did the entire time was sit there at a batting cage at three o'clock every day of my life, watching hitters, staring, learning, listening to scouts, listening to development people, listening to managers, listening to everybody and learning as much as I could, as quickly as I could from the best. And then when Sid Thrift left Pittsburgh, he went to the Yankees. And what did he want? He wanted to bring me because I was valuable in helping him to win. And then when I was with the Yankees, Lou Pinella and Bob Quinn, like, oh, they went to Cincinnati and they said, oh, we got to bring Jim with him because he was too valuable for me there. But again, the whole time I was just learning and developing and anytime I would run into an executive or a superstar player or a coach, I was always asking questions, always trying to figure out swings and deliveries and deception and how you know when a player's ready, and all of these type of things. Uh, but learning more than anything else, and then of course, as time goes on, when you're learning from the best, you figure out how to succeed. And so, when I went to Cincinnati and March taught named me the youngest GM in baseball history, was I ready to have that job? No, I wasn't. But what did I do? What, what What's the thing I did? First year I'm there, fifth place, twenty three games out. She walks into my office and said, most people would fire you, but I'm going to do something different. I'm going to keep you for one more year. You got to finish in first place, though, or you're fired. And you need to know that straight up because I'm not going to walk into the office and do it. You're going to pack up your bags if you don't finish in first. Now, to turn a major league team around that's 23 games out in fifth place in one year is almost impossible. So what did I do? I, I figured All right, we need to, I need to find a way to get people that have won world championships, that have great baseball minds, and I gotta bring them all in as quick as possible. So in came Davey Johnson and Jack McKeon and Bobby Valentine and Bob Boone. And we, one after another, I brought them in as quickly as I could, to put everyone in a room and say, guys, we gotta figure out a way to win right here, right now. And I studied humans, I studied our team, I looked at it. Our bullpen was terrible. I got to tell you this quick story. It was really funny. So I'm sitting there thinking I built a great bullpen in in 1993. And I had a lefty, a righty. I had hard throwers. I had breaking balls. I had different looks. I had five guys with ERAs around two. I thought it was amazing. And Davey Johnson looks at me and he goes, you have no idea how to build a bullpen, do you? I go, what are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Two lefties, two righties, velocity, breaking balls. Davey, what do you mean? He said, well, what are you going to do when the starter's knocked out after three innings? you got a bunch of guys that go one inning at a time. You're not going to be able to win. And, and then you, and then the manager's going to burn all your guys out. And by the second half of the year, you won't be competitive. This is a horrible bullpen. You have no concept of how to build it. So this is how we won a world championship in New York, the X, X, Y, Z. Ah, OK. Gave me the blueprint. Well, how is was a GM. I got the blueprint. Now I went and got the pitchers to fit in and and was able and then the other thing was the makeup and character of the team was just terrible. We got a lot of bad guys. And I'm like, all right, if I'm going to lose my job in one year, I'm not having any bad guys in my locker room. I'm getting rid of all those guys. Bye-bye. See you later. Released or traded all of them one after another. I'm going to if I'm going to win or lose it's going to be with good people. That's one thing I I learned early on and quick. We end up winning winning the division finishing first the next two years and i was able to keep my job and then four years later we did it again rebuilt it and i was named executive of the year in 99 but all of that i credit all the people that were around me and really smart people around me um, and then figuring out a way how to take everyone's success and turn it into the red success
0: people great great knowledge nuggets one thing i want to ask off of that is um how did you drive being in fifth place. How did you, those names are obviously baseball, you know, great minds. How did you being in fifth place and them knowing obviously probably your job as a GM is going to be on the line to bring that talent in? How did you, um, maybe not convince, but how did you build that, you know, great team around you?
2: Yeah. I mean, so the, I used the same concept that I did back when I was a young kid in Pittsburgh. And had to do things I didn't know the computers, the phones, and the construction. I went and got the best. And I asked them to help and was honest and said, Here it is. I don't know anything about it. I've, I've been given these tasks. We're trying to keep baseball in Pittsburgh. And yeah, but so here we are with the baseball team. And I got to win in one year. So what happens in baseball is Davey Johnson, who had won a World Series managing, in fact, he had won 90 games five different times as a manager. But he had a conflict with the Mets owner and kind of was blackballed from baseball, was sitting at home in Orlando, Florida, didn't have a job. Jack McKeon was out of a job. He had left the Padres despite the success that he had there. And by the way, he'd win a World Series as a manager later in his career. Uh, uh, Bob Boone, um, you know, same, same situation. And so what you find in baseball is the older generation always wants to help the younger generation if they want help and don't have all the answers. They want to help and they want to be a part of it. And when I would approach all of them, you know, I was always up front on what I knew and what I didn't know. Mm -hmm. I wasn't afraid to make a decision, but I I, voices that know matter to me. And I just was honest with them and told them the situation, what we had to do to win or I was out of a job. And that's it. And I said, I want to help. I I want you guys to help me, first of all, uh, put the Reds back on the winning track, which is what the goal is. And second of all, to be honest. I wouldn't mind being a GM more than a couple of years. And I ended up being one for 16 years, but all these guys wanted to help because they wanted to be a part of it. And they were out there. And a lot of times the one thing that Jack McKeon and Davey Johnson always told me is that a lot of younger executives, they don't want people around that are a threat because there's only so many jobs, you know, now there's only 30 GMs, 30 managers. So a lot of people don't want to hire high profile people that have done it because they're always afraid that they're going to t- take your job at some point. And, you know, I'm just, I was never that guy. If someone wants to take my job and they're better than go ahead and hire them. So that that was basically my strategy and it, it worked pretty well.
0: And I think that's so, I mean, think about our conversation this morning, Calvin, we talked about, <laughs> right. you know, okay leaders have quotes or bad leaders have quotes, good leaders, ha- <clears throat> excuse me, have a plan and exceptional leaders have a system. And you talked about learning that system from New York and instituting and then you're open being an open and, and and genuine leader and asking for help is how you built your team saying hey I don't know all the answers but you can help me be there and people want to be part of the solution they don't want to be part of a you know one person in an you know just running the show they want to be part of a team and be helping build and I've seen that in the business world so anyone that's listening to this you know you can institute that in any industry you're in is, you know, be a learning leader, allow, as you hear with Jim, how did he have success at an earlier, the youngest, <laughs> this is incredible, the youngest GM in MLB history at the time. Is that still stand by the way? Is that, are you? No, it,
2: it, it does not. I okay. mean, uh, Theo Epstein ended up being it and then uh, John Daniels okay. Um, and then David Stern. So it's, it's gone. Uh, we've passed the torch a few times.
0: Well, you are the, uh, yeah, you are the, the, but, 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 the guy that did it. That's incredible though.
2: Yeah, I mean, but back then, there were two young ones, um, Andy McPhail and Dave Dombrowski, and then I was kind of the third the third one to kind of break the record. But it was, you know, most GMs back then were 40, 50, 60. You know, you didn't see people as young as, as I was at the time. So it was a great opportunity, and it worked out well.
0: Speaking of, did you have something? No, go ahead. I was just going to go right into the the Mard shot and the Tony Perez. I know that was a tough time. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, sure. <clears throat> kind of bring it to Cincinnati. I know a lot of our listeners are based here in Ohio, especially it's, uh, being our home front. And, uh, you know, there was a tough decision you had to make and, and Trey kind of told me from his perspective, you know, obviously, you know, like death threats and planes saying, Hey, you know, fire you and all sorts of stuff. You made some tough decisions, you know, in those years, can you kind of touch upon, Anyone uh, that's in a leadership position making a very tough decision and how you went through that process. And you said planes, meaning airplanes flying
1: over your home. So just so you guys (laughs) know, like the serious of seriousness of this.
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, Tony Perez is a legend, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, especially in Cincinnati, the big red machine. Still a friend of mine, Eduardo Perez, I, I work with at ESPN now. Uh, also at SiriusXM, who, who's a friend of mine, his son, who I actually traded for. Uh, but it was a tough decision, but it was um, it happened in 93, and we were 20 and 24. And we had a real difficult situation because our owner, Marge Shot, was suspended from baseball. I was a rookie general manager my first year. Tony Perez was a rookie manager. So I want you to, to picture this scenario here, okay? You don't have an owner, and so I'm representing the owner. So I'm running the baseball side and the business side, and I have no experience in either, <laughs> and I'm the, one, I'm the one guy. Tony Perez is the manager. He's never managed before at any level. Um, so I'm over my head. He's over his head, and this is a complete disaster. It's just not working and it wasn't going to work, unfortunately. So someone had to go and it was either going to be me or Tony. Um, So at the end of the day, I think when, you know, you get to make the decision and you're choosing between the two, I ended up choosing myself to stay um, and chose to bring in, as we just talked about, experienced people that have been there, done that one. And here came Davy Johnson, here comes Jack McKeon, here comes Bob Boom, Bobby Valentine, you know, just bring, let's bring all these guys in. Let's turn this thing around. Uh, because I'm, I'm not gonna have a job after this. And we owe it to the Reds organization to turn it around as quick as possible. And as I said, we were able to finish in first place the next two years, and so the strategy worked. Now, in terms of making tough decisions, um, you can't succeed in life if you can't make them. And that you're gonna hurt a lot of feelings a lot of the times when you make these. Don't be in a leadership spot if you can't handle the big decisions and the tough ones. And as you mentioned, yeah, there was a uh, airplanes would fly over the stadium. fire Bowden, not Perez. You know, I got it, I get it. Death threats, police outside trying to protect me. People saying, you know what they're going to do. You know, but then how quickly life turns, right? And two years later, I had a Bengals game, and there's a, a plane going over, and the Bengals were having a bad year, and it said hire Bowden to be GM of both. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, that's how quick it turns because people want winners. Yeah. So you know. Even if you're losing and you're making right decisions that eventually turn it around, people will change when the team in sports, when the team wins, they'll, they'll completely do a 180 without
1: a question. Speaking of winners, you're responsible for bringing some winners to Cincinnati, uh, some pretty pretty big names uh, to name a few. Uh, primetime, Mr. Sanders, Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, I know you've got a great relationship with Aaron Boone. Uh, Sean Casey, care to touch on some of those relationships just for the for the Cincinnati fan base and and even just the baseball fanatics?
2: Sure, absolutely. So um, if you could see the face of Marge Shot when I walked in. And told her that I wanted to trade Roberto Kelly for primetime dollar sign Dion Sanders. <laughs> if you had seen her face and I'm, I'm explaining about, the, you know, all of the chains he's going to be wearing and, you know, all, all the act that comes with him. I mean, she was so upset at me and she allowed me to do it, but she was so mad that she would not allow me to have a press conference in the Crosby room. At at the ballpark where we have all our press conferences, so I had to have a, a press conference at my home, in in Anderson Township. So we had a cookout for the media at the pool as I sat there and, and told people that I had acquired Dion. Dion became one of my one of my favorite athletes and favorite human beings I've ever been around because he was such a great teammate and he really was focused on how to improve, how to get better how to make the teammates better. He's got a giving heart, a generous heart, um, really smart. And boy, was it fun watching him run. And he wanted to learn. And as I told him at the time, and and I'll say this forever, had he played baseball full-time and not football, he would have been one of the greatest leadoff hitters ever. He would have been in the Tim Raines conversation, Ricky Henderson conversation. That's how much physical talent he had. And he had the makeup and the intelligence to do it. He couldn't throw. And then later in his career, because of his football injuries, he wasn't able to run at his level. But he, he had enough bat, enough power, and enough speed to, to be a superstar leadoff hitter. Ken Griffey Jr. was my favorite moment, obviously. Uh, not many people get to make uh, a trade of that magnitude. So as a GM, it's kind of the dream trade. And to bring Jr. back to Cincinnati, I had hired his dad the year before as a hitting coach, uh, trying to set it up there. And uh, to watch the whole process of trading for him when I had a deal and the owner told me to back out. And then I had another deal and the owner said he didn't want to do it. And then finally, in February of 2000, uh, the owner with pressure from the fans of Cincinnati uh, finally allowed us to close the deal and and get them and uh, being able to sit there. And Junior and I flew together on Carl Lindner, who was the owner at the time, private jet uh, from Sarasota. We land at Lunkin Airport in in Cincinnati. And I'll never forget. Uh, three helicopters from all the news stations are hovering over us as we land. Uh, We've got Carl Linder's Rolls where Junior was driving, and then he had a stretch limo for for my family and Junior's family right behind him. And we drove as a procession to the stadium while the helicopters and the TV stations were carrying it live, the the O.J. Simpson drive, right? So it was uh, an experience I'll never forget my entire life, that was a highlight. Uh, Aaron Boone, Sean Casey, Mike Cameron, those guys for the '99 team—that was the most fun team I've ever been around. Uh, as far as human beings having a blast and winning games, and then after the games, going to the locker room and watching these guys dance uh, <laughs> in the most bizarre fashions ever. These these were all young kids that came together a year before we thought they would, or maybe even two years before we thought they'd put it together, and they end up winning the '96 games. But it was. um the makeup and the character of those kind of guys And and by the way i did really well in getting players that would end up being good broadcasters like aaron boone and sean casey and eduardo perez by the way
0: and you actually just kind of took that out of my mouth that what they've done after um you know i was looking at like thinking about all those guys and really last night and as you as you spoke the character of those guys and you saw it during their playing days but then really the after and what they're doing the communities and also the professionalism they show uh in in the in the success like say it's Aaron Boone or Sean Casey and, and all those guys so character does matter right in a clubhouse and having leadership in you know talent is important but without in my opinion without leadership when I look at World Series teams you got to have both that is that accurate
2: oh absolutely just remember this you win with people not players that's too you win with people you win with humans I mean um you know when you I'm sure you all watched the Michael Jordan Uh, 10 episodes on ESPN, which was phenomenal, but you, you know, you learn about Michael's drive and his work ethic and Kobe Bryant was my favorite athlete And you know, to watch the makeup and the character. I mean, as a GM, you always are searching for that kind of player, that kind of makeup, that kind of focus, that kind of passion, that kind of heart. I mean, that's how you win. Um, The other thing I wanted to get to, well, you know, in terms of the underdog that's important is, you know, I was a GM for a long time, for 16 years, long time in Cincinnati. And then I went to Washington and I was there for five years, but I'll never forget. I, I had a gentleman come into my office named Maury Gosfranc who was an agent for broadcasters. And, and he came into my office and introduced himself and he sat down and he said, um, he said, what are you going to do after baseball? And I said, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm going to be a GM forever. He said, no, you're not. He said, there's only 30. Do the math. Normally they stay five or six years. You've been able to stay and at the time. I think it was 10 years. He said, you've been able to stay a decade, but come on. At some, at some point it's going to end. It ends for everybody. Uh, and uh, I said, well, I don't understand your point. And he said, well, what's plan B is plan B you're going to be a special assistant in the behind home plate. You know, are you, you going to scout? I mean, tell me what your plan B is. And I said, well, I hadn't thought about it. He said, well, you better have a plan B. So I'm going to help prepare you for a plan B while you're a GM. I said, what does that mean? He said, well, in college, you know, you broadcasted, you know, and I, I've seen you do TV and radio. So what we're going to do is we're going to get you a TV show, a radio show, and we're going to have you write an article in a newspaper once a week. Uh, and I'm going to prepare you for life after being a GM. I said, and by the way, I'm going to bring you an extra X amount of money. It's OK. Yeah, I like the <laughs> X amount of money. <laughs> Not a lot of work. And OK, we can do that. So I did that in Cincinnati and then I did the same thing in Washington and it prepared me for when my tenure ended in Cincinnati, my phone rang an hour and a half later from ESPN baseball tonight. Can you get on a plane? Can you come in here? Can you get on the set of baseball tonight? I can do that. And then the ESPN two show cold pizza then hired me. Then I went back to to work in Washington. um, And then when the Washington, Thing ended fox sports in los angeles called me and said hey can you fly out of here we got to get you but all of that happened because while i had a really good job while i was preparing i also was getting ready for plan b which you have to prepare for in life because none of us know if plan a is always going to work
1: and that's one i'm glad you mentioned kobe bryant because that's one thing that has has come out about him while he, during his playing days you would always hear you know on the flight it's home from games and different things. He was always reading and writing and working on different things, and it's no wonder that a year after he retires from playing 20 years in the NBA, he wins an uh, Emmy, I believe, or an
0: Oscar. or Something. So he won, Oscar. He wins, yeah, Oscar, he wins yeah, an right
1: Oscar list. for for. See, look, he's writing. a real Lakers right. fan. Jim's a so, real
0: Lakers fan, and you're not. Emmy, you Oscar,
1: Grammy, I get them all confused. At the end of the day, I know my favorite player uh-huh.
0: won an award, but it just goes
1: to show that, like, you know, they say plan B, you know, early on when you have a drive you didn't have a plan B as far as wanting to become a GM that was your driving your main focus but you had someone come in your life and say hey at some point you need to have a fallback when this does come to an end and you didn't wait until it ended to to pursue that you were educated enough to say okay let's start working on this and sure enough like you said shortly thereafter you, you know you were you were joining ESPN
0: so I think that's just a credit to to your what you've done and most people right Jim i mean it's really difficult and, and maybe you can explain the reality of going from GM and MLB executive in the front office then to media is not either. I don't know if you were the first one or there wasn't a lot prior, right? So you might've been, you know, kind of establishing that, uh, that, that precedence as being, Hey, you can do this for also people in the front office. Is that, can you kind of touch upon that?
2: Yeah. I mean, Steve Phillips and I were actually the first two GMs to go to the media side. Um, And both of us went at the same time to ESPN. And then when the commissioner's office called me and said, hey, do you wanna come run the Montreal Expos that soon gonna be the Washington team? Do Do you wanna come run them at an interim basis? They made me an offer that I couldn't refuse. So I took a leave of absence from ESPN and took that job. Well, Steve stayed at ESPN. He ended up being the Sunday night, one of the analysts for Sunday night baseball with uh, Joe Morgan um, and ended up having a really um, successful career there until he had some off field uh, issues or off broadcast issues. Um, But yeah, it was very rare to go on that side. But what the media learned quickly is that the value of a GM is the angle, the way they see a game or the way we see a game is a different lens and what a player sees or manager sees or a, um, a, a broadcaster sees like, it's just, it's, it's this unique angle. And it's because from the GM side, your job is always, um, so well-rounded because every, you have everyone reporting to you, right? You have the players, you have the manager and the coaching staff, you have the scouts, you have the development people, Um, you have access to the business people and the business part of the game. So you're seeing the whole spectrum of, of the sport. So when you get into broadcasts, instead of an ex player telling you what he sees, which is extremely valuable, the GM angle sees something different to add to what the players say. So then all of a sudden, if you have an ex manager, an ex player, an ex GM, now you've got the game really covered, but with three different lenses. Which added more to broadcast and added more to the media, which is why the concept ended up working.
0: Yeah, that I've always found it fascinating. I've never talked to a GM, so this is a pleasure to have that ability. But you know, to be in between owner and uh, and player, so at, and it's in in having those relationships. And it sounds like you for, you formed great relationships over your time, um, and then obviously translating, you know, writing now for uh, Athletic. MLB radio, you know, TV stations, ESPN, like you, you haven't just had a plan B, let's just, let's just state facts here. You've had a unbelievable plan B in transitioning into, um, the media and, sustaining excellence in that field. Um, and, uh, you I know, I'll, that's, add, I'll add on to that just as a fan too, you know, it, I'm
1: always appreciative of, you know, especially I'll just kind of use, uh, NBA as an example, like hearing like a Mark Jackson who's played, but then you're hearing from his perspective, then you hear from like a Jeff Gundy, who's a former head coach, but then, you know, hearing someone, you know, who's who's been in the management role uh, as general manager, like to your point, having a completely different perspective and putting all those together and just being a consumer of sports and really loving the process and the science that goes into the sport. I think that's always just really intriguing to, to listen to you guys talk and break it down for someone who doesn't really get to be in that, you know, in that environment on a day to day. So I think that's very awesome and appreciate, you know, what you do, uh, you know, on the day to day.
2: And of course, you know, the games and the sports changed so much, you know, analytics became really big over the last five to six years. And now it's such an important part of decision-making um, and you have to jump on board and, you know, there's a lot of people who will say, well, I don't believe in this or I don't believe that. Well, you need to believe in everything because everything has value. It's just a matter of how much balance and how much weight we put on everything in, in making those kind of decisions. Right.
0: So there's a lot of, um, uh, of us at here at work that go out. My father-in-law is a big proponent of these fancy camps. You're probably going to laugh because you, you probably think it's a big joke, but when we go out there, I'm thinking, you know what, we need to get Jim to come out and evaluate and help piece these teams because there's 12 teams of 12 and I'm pretty sure I might be his first pick. I got pretty good glove at third, I got pretty good power at the plate. I can hit fifty-year-old pitchers pretty well. I do like a little velocity coming in. Those EFAS pitches are tough, but I expect Jim, if you do come out and those draft what, those what pitches? What's that? What? Those they're what? called EFAS pitches. They're big lob pitches. Right. You, you read know. the dictionary this morning. Yeah. All right. Let's go. I gotta educate yeah, you. Yeah, it's the
2: Bill Lee pitch to Tony Perez. Reds fans will know <laughs> Tony Perez hit that home run against Bill Lee in the seventy-five World Series. That was an EFAS. <laughs> yeah. We J- got knowledge. Gotta get back
0: out the year. Knowledge. And have a draft uh, J- a bunch of. Uh, 30 well, to
2: 70 year olds. Here's the problem with that. So when I was the, the GM of the Reds and we had fantasy camps and we would have them uh, really in spring training in February before our guys reported, I would go in the backfields to kind of support it. But I got to tell you, by the time I saw the hamstring pulls and the calf pulls and and the guys laying on the ground and the ambulances. is gonna, I, I finally said, I can't watch this anymore.
0: I just can't do it. Bunch of washed up guys like yeah. my partner trying here. Trying to live out the dream. Hey, I, I guess, yeah, it's, it's, we won't go there, but I think that's <laughs> a perfect segue <laughs> to, to rapid, rapid fire. fire. So uh, every, every uh, section we do and, and Trey helped us here a little bit. So um, we do rapid fire. We got a couple for you. I'll, I'll lead it off here uh obviously a huge cowboys and lakers fan if you had to choose one of the two uh if you had a choice and you only could choose one which one would you uh have to root for go to a game or watch a championship
2: i give you the same answer Deion sanders gave me both
0: (laughs) that's why he's good he's good at what he does different seasons right you can make both both baby (laughs) prime time
1: all right uh, all right. So the second one, which is very, very interesting uh, for you, for the listeners, I think, cause we thought it was crazy. Um, what do you guys do every Christmas Eve as a family?
2: Uh, we we uh, go through the car wash about 25 to 30 times. Um, <laughs> it's, it's always a rental car. You know, I fly in and then, you know, ever since um, Trey was in, it was in a car seat with his twin brother and his, his two older brothers, um, Tyler and Chad, uh, we would go to the car wash. And what we do is um, we just keep paying the full amount. And we just go through over and over again, playing Christmas carols, uh, sing, singing the Christmas carols, uh, calling uh, grandparents for the kids. And that's what we do. And we believe, and I don't know if this is true or not, we believe we're only the only people in America mm-hmm. that do that. And we just do it nonstop. Now, I know a lot of people do a lot of things, but remember this also on that particular day. It's always just me and my kids. Uh, So it's it's just always just the five of us. And we've never not done it. So every year of Trey's life, we've been we've been doing this here. And um, but understand that day is also fun because, you know, we go to a movie, we go to lunch, we go to dinner, we go bowling. Uh, Now that they've gotten over the age of 21, maybe we have a cocktail or two, Uh, but yeah, it's a lot of fun and it's a tradition and it's what we do. And it's, uh, and for some reason we laugh just as hard every single year as we get through it the 23rd time or the 24th time, but watching the face of the guy at the car wash, just not understanding because it's always a different guy every single year, I guess they all must have a high turnover rate there on Beachmont Avenue. Uh, But yeah, that's what we do.
1: How did that originate the very first time?
2: Uh, so the very first time, um, a divorce family. Um, uh, so child support, when they were young, we had child support hours. And the kids were to be dropped off at an exact time. And we got done the movies, the bowling, and all the events that we did. Uh, we got done with plenty of time to go. So how are we going to kill the extra hour in ten minutes? That's the car wash uh, without a lot of options and a snowstorm. Ah, the car wash. <laughs> so that's that's how it originated. And then it was too great, and we're like, yeah, let's do it. So we've been doing it for two decades.
0: That's oh, man. great. Man. It, it, and I got a, a <laughs> secondary question off of that. There's a bowling initiative. If they hit a score, to my understanding, they were able to go on a trip. That never but, happened. But that never <laughs> happened. So. What what's uh what's the down low on the bowling score here?
2: So trying to teach the kids teamwork and competitiveness, and trying to get to a certain uh, level in in terms of what you bowl. So I was always like doing the math when they were young and growing up, and trying to get goals, and so to give them the incentive that hey, if we if we get to this number as a group, we're we're gonna we're gonna get to a tournament in Hawaii but we got to do so these kids would they would grind to get these points and i'd always put the numbers so they couldn't quite get there ah it's too bad well hopefully next week we can do it you know i always did it and then all of a sudden a couple of times they started going off and they'd be bowling 160 and 180 and i'd be going oh no (laughs) this is not good so then i'd have to come up with uh some excuse i think one one time we had a, a computer failure and unfortunately uh the score didn't count or something i don't know but we had we had a lot of fun with it but the, the interesting part was trey and chase um they just didn't pick it up you know tyler and chad they, they picked it up pretty quick but trey and chase it took them a long time to figure out what dad was really doing
0: come on trey
2: <laughs> I, I think trey figured it out last year wasn't it last year trey
0: yeah he said, he <laughs> says it sounds about right <laughs> So, and the, but I guess there's something viral winning stacker, uh, five years in the making on Christmas Eve as well. Can you kind of touch upon the, what that's all about?
2: Oh, so yeah. So, um, <laughs> uh, Trey's brother, Chad, uh, puts a lot of money into that video game where you have to you stack. And if you get to the top, you win the big prize in those machines. Um, will have to tell you the exact game. Anyway, I'll just pump in hundreds of dollars in this stupid game. Chad never won, never had a chance to win, but he loves doing it. So it's like, all right, here you go. Just keep doing it. Well, all of a sudden, um, two years ago, he won. And Trey's got the video of it. You got to have Trey share it with you. It was the funniest thing. But I got to tell you, the celebration of my sons, when that was accomplished, was as exciting as the '90 World Championship locker room in Oakland.
0: That's awesome, man. That's crazy. Oh, that's great. That's great, man. I got. I might have to join you guys on Beachmont Avenue and just follow your car around the car wash. I might. I might have to right. start that. Be the second family, uh, the Decker family, be the second following uh, that tradition. That's a great that, that's, tradition. That is unbelievable. I like it. That's so cool. Um, so what do you typically, being from Boston, being from the East Coast,
1: what do you typically eat on Thanksgiving? I hear it's not the traditional turkey.
2: Oh yeah, so yeah, here's the thing. So I don't I don't love turkey. A lot of my kids don't love turkey. And so what we do is we have uh, Maine lobster flown in and we do lobster and steak, a surf and turf, but we'll also we have two Thanksgivings, right? So we have the Wednesday and the Thursday Thanksgiving. So one will be lobster and steak and the other will be the traditional turkey because we got to take care of all the generations. So we do both. But I always want to make sure that instead of having a meal that we really don't like, why can't we have a meal that we really do like since it's 2020? So we do that. Now, the only downside on Thanksgiving, you know, the Cowboys play, as you know, every, every Thanksgiving. So here's the thing. If the Cowboys win, then Thanksgiving celebration just gets better and better all night long. It's really fun. But if the Cowboys lose, then everyone has to go to bed
0: an early night oh i like that i like night. it win win have fun if not there's repercussions for the cowboys so yeah. at least the cowboys are getting better that's true there could be some good years coming up for you get your qb squared away um one of the last ones i found this kind of interesting uh your baseball or wiffle ball swing emulates which player Barry Bonds. <laughs> yes. Boom. There's the <laughs> Yeah,
2: it's not, it's not even close. Yeah. And I and I had he the, says that the, with the, so
0: much confidence too.
2: Oh, well, I had the swag right after right afterwards. Yeah. The the only thing that was tough because obviously uh it was a lot of fun. When they got older, Trey figured out that I couldn't hit the fastball in on the hands. So I just need to extend a little bit because I have a long swing. And so all of a sudden he started figuring it out. And so he would just throw it right in my, in on my hands. And of course I would just try to, when they were younger, I could just take it or foul it off and wait until they put one out over the plate. And then all of a sudden, you know, like they just wouldn't cause they knew what the result was. So then he started hitting me. So then we used to just charge the mound and start having, remember in baseball hitters used to charge the mound yeah. and stuff. So we started doing that as well.
1: Well, it, it goes to show you have a division, Trey's a division one baseball player. So, you know, as he got older and he starts to figure those things out, you know, he's putting
0: it in on your hands and it shows. So he's having some success at the D one level. So yeah. Shout out to the NKU Norse, right Is That right. Yeah. yeah. So, so shout out to that baseball squad. Um, Jim, thank you so much. Yeah, man. You know, we really, really appreciate your time. Uh, appreciate, you know, you supporting the underdog podcast and your underdog story and, and how you were able to explain it is, is a, is a motivation to me. I've, i learned some knowledge it, and, um, you know, success, you know, more power to your success. Uh, we appreciate it. We look forward to following your story and, uh, how can anyone uh, engage with you and, and, uh, you know, look at what you're doing.
2: I think the best way is probably on Twitter at Jim Bowden GM Um, And then if you want to read my stuff on the athletic, and then if you want to watch me on TV, I'm on CBS sports HQ. And then if you want to listen to me, do radio games. uh, I do ESPN radio games on Saturdays, all the holidays. I do the wild card um, and I do the division series for them. And then you can listen to me on Sirius XM. I'm on MLB network radio, as well as on fantasy alarm. I do uh, seven radio shows a week as well. So you can catch me on any of those. And if you want to communicate, at Jim Bowden gm on twitter
1: so we snuck out an hour because it sounds like you're busy man and again to kyle's point i appreciate you taking the time because uh yeah you seven radio shows and you just slid the underdog in there for 45 minutes so uh definitely a, a, a tremendous thank you to, for for taking the time man
2: yeah thanks for having me on absolutely love your podcast and we're gonna get uh we're gonna get your ratings flying here. You guys are just starting, man. Just out work everybody and just keep killing it. I love the guests you've had on. Uh, your podcasts are great, and I uh, can't wait to hear your next one.
1: If there's a slot on Sirius FM, just let us know. <laughs> <laughs> Move Howard Stern over.
2: <laughs> That's how you get started.
0: Yeah, you know? yeah. like you said, it starts at the copier, right? You taught us that today. <laughs> hey, so no doubt. We're no gonna, doubt. We're, gonna working, your, we're gonna take your we're gonna take your work again. Yeah, work ethic works, right? So we appreciate it. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll be talking to you soon.
2: Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks
0: Thanks for listening to The Underdog Podcast. Please subscribe and rate our podcast on the Apple and Google podcast apps. And send our Twitter handle a screenshot of your rating at Underdog Pod with your shirt size for a chance to win a free t-shirt. See you next week on the UDP.